in our songs and in the children's message, you'll have noticed the theme of the Holy Spirit. And that's because today is the day of Pentecost, where we remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a unique way uh, on that incredible day. And providentially, our our text this morning from John actually makes reference to the Holy Spirit. So we're going to continue our sermon series, working through the book of John with that question, who is Jesus, by reading the rest of the chapter 7, We'll be beginning in verse 25. If you have your pew Bibles and like to follow along there, it can be found on page 1061. Otherwise, all of the words will be on the screen as found behind me. Again, from the book of John, chapter 7, where I'll be reading verses 25 through 52. Again, at the Feast of Booths, it says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. When I, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the diaspora among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they had heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? 
Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if I were to ask you to think about your life and think about not the things that you want, but what do you really need in life, what would you say? Now, as we contemplate that answer, we have to be honest about the fact that that answer will change based on your circumstances at different times in life. So if you're a seventh grader taking a geography test and you need a good grade on that test, you need to know all of the capitals of the European countries and where they are. Most people don't need to know that. Or more extreme, if you're going to jump out of an airplane, you will need a parachute, something most people don't have. And so we have to be sympathetic to the fact that when we ask, what do you really need That answer will change based on who you are, what time you live, where you live, and the circumstances that you find yourself in. But if you do really boil it down and you think, what do I need in life? If we're honest, that list of things that we need is a lot shorter than we often think. And of course, chief on that list would be the most fundamental needs of existence, things like water to drink and and food to eat, without which we would not survive for very long. But again, we are blessed to live at a time and a place when water and food is really easy for us to get. Which is why, instead of thinking about those as needs very often, we add a whole bunch of other things that we want, thinking that they're needs, which, instead of really giving life to us, actually often take life from us. But again, if you are going to thrive in this life and truly be the person that God had called you to be, what do you need Last week when we started our look at chapter 7 of John, it was mentioned that scene was taking place during the Feast of Booths. It was a feast that commemorated how God had led the people out of Egypt. And once they were freed from being enslaved and found themselves in the middle of the wilderness, they realized what they really needed. And they were confronted by the question of, is there going to be any water here for us to drink? And what are we going to eat while we are making this long journey of these many, many people? Well, this feast then was a celebration As they looked back and remembered as a nation the way that God had provided for them during that wilderness wandering from Egypt to the promised land. And how he had miraculously given them water to drink and food to eat the entire time. And it was an encouragement that as God had provided for them in the past, he would continue to provide for them in the present day. 
The setting of the feast then would become critical to the points that Jesus is making about himself in this text, which is that part of the text I'm going to especially focus on this morning in verses 37 through 39. However, since there's a lot more going on in the passage than just those three verses, I felt compelled to address a couple of other issues first. First of all, as we clearly see from the beginning and we read in the text, this struggle with their questions about the identity of Jesus continue. The people are openly wondering if Jesus might be the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. And as they ask that question, they kind of put together a a pro and con list to examine. On on the pro side of the list, we continue to see that the um, appeals to his miracles— While many of the people are are fairly simple-minded, they ask the very fair question in verse 31, when the real Christ appears, is he going to do more signs than this man? If Jesus had turned water into wine, if he had healed those who had been afflicted by illnesses for many, many years, if he had fed thousands of people with a small amount of food, and yet you discredit that as a miracle... Well, what is the real Christ going to have to do that's better or bigger than that? Another thing on the pro side of the list were his teachings. And again, in our text, we have reference to the fact that people were just amazed by the authority and the wisdom and the, the power with which Jesus taught, especially as one who we learned last week wasn't educated in the traditional sense. However, there's also things on the con side of the list in their minds. They had interpreted, for example, the prophecy from Malachi 3.1 that said, the Lord will suddenly come to his temple to suggest that when the Messiah comes, he would just kind of appear out of nowhere and and people wouldn't know where he had come from. And, And yet they knew that Jesus was from Galilee, so that seemed to disqualify him. Similarly, they assumed, and remember that word from last week, they assumed that Jesus, being from Galilee, was born in Galilee. And there is some real prejudice exposed in this text about what it meant to be from Galilee, especially at the end. But again, that would disqualify him from being the Christ because in their ignorance, they again assumed that Jesus uh, was not the, the Christ because the Christ had to come from the line of David and had to be from Bethlehem, which wasn't in Galilee. Ironically proving the point that they actually didn't know where Jesus had come from because he was from the line of David and born in Bethlehem. However, not knowing that, they put that on the con side of the list and their assumptions were wrong. So while they're also wrestling with this question, the religious leaders also become a prominent in this text. And they're wrestling, well, well, how do we handle this? And again, at the beginning of the text, when there's this question about if Jesus is the Christ, if you look closely, that question isn't directed to or even about Jesus in particular. It actually becomes a question toward the leaders. And the people are watching Jesus teach and they're wondering, well, If the leaders aren't doing anything about this guy, does that mean that they agree with him? If they're not stepping in to stop him, doesn't that affirm that he's the Christ? Well, in hearing this, this just 
prompts the leaders to say, we've got to do something. And so they gather together and they assign officers to go and arrest Jesus, but they never follow through. Now they say they don't arrest Jesus because they were amazed by his teaching, which is true. It's also true that although they had sent to arrest Jesus, they didn't have any reason to arrest him. And in fact, Nicodemus at the end of our text is right when he says that if they're going to use the law to condemn Jesus, then they better follow the law in their arresting of him. But both of these things kind of miss the point because our text also makes it abundantly clear that the real reason Jesus isn't arrested now is because it wasn't yet his time. And God, as always, still was in control of everything that was happening and when it was supposed to happen and not these religious leaders. All right. All of that is background ground I felt compelled to cover, partially because I didn't want to ignore a vast swaths of the text, but also because I want to encourage us in our continuing consideration of that question, who is this Jesus? I said last week that the time would come when we will be faced with a choice. How are we going to respond to Jesus? Are we going to see him as one to whom to give our life or to take his life? Are we one to whom we will credit as the Christ and surrender all to him? Or will we ignore and dismiss him as a lunatic who doesn't meet our criteria for who God is? And the question I think we can draw from this text is, well, what are those things that you hold on to when you ask those questions? And when you come up with the answers that you come up with, how do you know who Jesus is? And what are the things that you cling to to affirm the faith that you hold or the reasons why you are tempted to walk away? However, as I did say, I wanted to focus this morning on verses 37 through 39 of our text. And that's where I want to turn our attention to now. So, So far throughout this feast, we've been hearing about the fact that uh, Jesus has been teaching. But in 37, finally, we hear what Jesus is teaching. And verse 37 starts with the statement that on the last day of the feast, the great day, which is one commentary uh, rightly points out, is sort of a way of John of highlighting this section. He's pointing a spotlight on it, and he's saying This next statement is critical to what's taking place in this entire scene. So pay attention to what you're about to hear. John wants us to make sure that there's a clear connection between what Jesus is saying and what's happening in this feast. And so we go back a few weeks to that sermon series we did in the season of Lent. And we remember that the Feast of Booths was that feast that took place in the fall after the main harvest. It was a week-long feast where the people would live for a week in these shelters, again, reminding them of how they had lived in shelters or booths or tabernacles for the period of time between their leaving slavery in Egypt and their arrival in the promised land. Both as a reminder, again, as I had said, of what God had done for them in the past 
and an anticipation of the fact that he will continue as they entered into the winter season to provide for them the rains and the waters that they would need to thrive and flourish. Now, as noted a couple of weeks ago, a central part to this celebration was the water ritual. It was that daily and especially at the end of the feast, multiple times in that day, celebration where the priest would go and take jars and dip them in the pool of Siloam and then bring them through the water gate, named after this practice, and dump that water out on the altar Reminding them again in the past of the way that God had miraculously provided for water in the hitting of the rock when they were in the wilderness. And a call for more rains in the future. And in the middle of that celebration, Jesus stands up and he makes this declaration. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's a bold and direct claim that Jesus is making that he is the fulfillment of what this feast is all about. As one commentator put it so succinctly, and I'll, because of that, quote it directly, they write, Israel was thirsty in the wilderness and disputed with Moses, as explained in Exodus 17. At the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, spiritually thirsty people are disputing about where Jesus came from and where he is going. Moses struck the rock and water flowed to quench the people's thirst. At the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus offers living waters to those who come to him. Jesus is the rock. Jesus will be struck. Water will flow from Jesus. And Jesus will give the Holy Spirit to sustain his people on their journey to the promised land. End quote. And so that invitation that Jesus gives to come To me and drink, all who are thirsty, as an invitation, just as it was to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, to come to him and have a relationship with him. To accept him for the Christ that he truly was, and in accepting that, to know the life that he came to bring. And then we get the explanation. It says, now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, when it says that the text, when, when it says in the text that the Spirit had not yet given, don't misunderstand that to suggest that the Spirit didn't as of yet exist. The Spirit, as pointed out to our children, is part of the triune God. And as such, He, with the Father and the Son, is eternal. He has always existed, and He is mentioned as existing from the very beginning of Scripture. However, when we look at the Old Testament and see references to the working of the Spirit among God's people, we recognize that instead of being broad to everyone, it's it's much more individualistic. It's a limited blessing of the Spirit to certain people under certain circumstances. And so, for example, in Numbers chapter 11, 
there's a scene where during this wilderness wandering, the people are getting fed up. Although God's giving them manna to eat every day, that miraculous bread-like food that they collect every single morning, they're tired of that. They want meat. They want something different. And so they grumble to Moses and complain. They want more. And Moses is getting frustrated. Frustrated with their ongoing grumbling and disappointment. And so God commands Moses to gather 70 elders who will help him to carry his burden of leadership. And to help, God promises that when he gets these 70 elders together, that God would give some of the spirit that he'd given to Moses to these elders as well, so that they can help him carry this burden. And that's what takes place. The elders gather together, and and the spirit is shared from Moses to them, and many of them start to prophesy as a result for a time However, there are two elders that didn't go to the separate place, uh, to the tabernacle to receive this spirit, but they are in the camp and they too start to prophesy. And then we're told in Numbers 11, 27 and 29, and a young man ran and told Moses, these two elders, Eldab and Medab, are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Moses hungered for that day when everyone would know the Spirit of God. That the Spirit would speak to all believers directly instead of just through a few select servants. That was a day that Moses longed for and it was a day that the prophet Joel longed for when he prophesied in Joel 2.28 And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. And that text from Joel 2 is exactly the text that ends up getting quoted in order to explain the circumstances that took place on the day of Pentecost. 50 days after Jesus ascended, Jesus arose from the grave, 10 days after he ascended to heaven, just as he had promised, on the feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. And as described in Acts chapter 2, it was poured out on the disciples where they heard a great rushing wind like a mighty th- a thunderstorm and a, a tongue of fire appeared above their heads and then they went forth into the street and in a miraculous way were able to proclaim the good news of the gospel in such a way that people who spoke all kinds of different languages were able to understand exactly what they were saying and on that very day 3,000 came to know Jesus Christ Somewhat ironically, when compared to our text, where Jesus is kind of mocked for saying, oh, are you going to go out to the diaspora of the Greeks and preach to the Greeks? Yes. His message was for the whole world. Which is why when the Spirit was poured out, it would help bring that message of hope to the whole world. 
And again in our text, Jesus says that the Spirit is the living water that will flow from the believer's heart. And all of that is not just amazingly fun to think about and to make all of these great connections between the Old Testament and Jesus' prophecy and the things that happened many days later. But it also brings a lot of encouragement, I think, to us today, on this day of Pentecost, when we celebrate the gift of the Spirit. That just like in a dead and dry wilderness where water is needed, is necessary for things to live, to grow, and to flourish. So also in a dead world, the Holy Spirit is needed, is necessary for the church to live, to grow, and to flourish. But post-Pentecost, that spirit has been given and is available to all who believe and ask for that spirit's presence in our lives to continue to guide us and direct us and to give us the comforting knowledge that the Holy Spirit has been given to me personally, to you personally, so that by true faith he makes me sure, makes me share in Christ and all his blessings, comforts me and remains with me forever, like the Heidelberg Catechism says. And I think that's especially a word of encouragement for those who were installed this morning as new elders and deacons. And even for those who will continue in that role. As you are being asked to now share in the responsibility and to carry the load of leadership in this church, Know that you cannot carry that weight without the help of the Holy Spirit. And if you try to fulfill these roles in your own power, like the religious leaders in Jesus' day, you will be deceived, you will be lost, and you will eventually fail in that work. And so, for all of you, I especially challenge and encourage you to ask for that Spirit. To seek the Spirit's wisdom and guidance through His inspired Word and to trust that as you lean on the guidance of the Spirit, that God will use you to bless this church. But that doesn't just apply to leaders. Again, the joy of Pentecost is that the Spirit has been poured out to all believers, including each and every one of you. And again, in a world that is full of temptation and death and struggles, we need the Spirit to do what the Bible says the Spirit will do, to comfort us, to guide us, to encourage us, and to help us spread the gospel of hope to a world that needs it. The Spirit is necessary. Without the Spirit, we have no life. But when we ask for the Spirit and we receive His presence in our lives, there is nothing that we cannot do for God and His kingdom. And so at this feast that remembered how God had provided for and carried His people in the past, Jesus gave the promise that all of that uh, came that all that came to him and drank and entered into a relationship with him 
that God would provide his spirit so that they could know and share the true life with the world. And I pray that we as a church and each and every one of you will be guided and and encouraged by the work of the Spirit. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. God in heaven, uh, today we sit as your church thankful for the gift of your Spirit. We thank you that as the Old Testament had your law to guide and direct them, we have the direct knowledge of your Spirit which encourages us, which comforts us, which convicts us when we sin and helps us to stand as your people. Lord, we confess that oftentimes we've tried to build your church and to be your followers in our own strength, neglecting the gift of the Spirit. But I do pray that a new revival of your Spirit would be poured out on us and in this world so that your gospel message of hope to a hurting and dying, desperately thirsty world would be satisfied in a new way. And so, Lord, I pray that we would seek your Spirit, that we would pursue your Spirit through your Word, that your Spirit would indeed speak to us as we seek to live out our lives of faith, sharing the living water that you have given to us with a thirsty world. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, through the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen.